Turn our attention to God's Word again as we find ourselves in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're going to move into all of chapter 6. And we pick up this book that we've been studying, and we do so seeking out an answer to a simple question. Where do I find the good life? Where do I find the good life? And Solomon, as he declares himself, King Solomon of Israel, says he is the preacher or the pundit or the professor. And he has come and he has assembled amongst him all who will listen. And he wants to tell us this morning, as he has each and every week, where the good life can be found. Now, he's going to do so by using the world as his laboratory. And he is going to use his own life. Solomon is aged when he writes uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. He's at the end of his life, and he wants to use his life as a cautionary tale to where the good life can't be found. And he has articulated from the get-go that the good life cannot be found in pleasure, uh, pleasure, prestige, power, possessions. It can't be found in the parties of life that while all those things have their place and their moments, our ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in this world has to be found in something more than that which he has said over and over again is under the sun. That is the things that are of this world. And so he has turned his attention because he has struggled in this pursuit for a large part of his life. He thought he could find satisfaction and fulfillment in those things. He has now at the end of his life realized that that isn't where it's found. And he says that living life apart from God is utterly meaningless. So whatever we do, whether pursuing pleasures or pursuing possessions or prestige and power or, 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 or the parties of life, all of them must bring God into the equation. And until we do that, Solomon says life will be meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You won't find the good life. Now, we as Christ followers know and recognize that Jesus said he came into this world so that we may have life and life in all abundance. So what Jesus is saying is what Solomon is foretelling, that there is a good life to be found, and that good life is found in Jesus Christ. Now, here's the problem. We are living life under the sun, and with all that is done under the sun here on earth are a lot of temptations. And we have this temptation of living life apart from God. And what he wants to focus on this morning is how we spend our money apart from God and why we do it and how that keeps us from the good life that God wants us to have. Now, listen to me, church. We have a problem as human beings with money. We have a problem with money because we have bought into the world's lies that money is what keeps us, the lack of money is what keeps us from happiness. The lack of money or the absence of money keeps us from the good life. And so our goal, our pursuit in this world is to get as much money, to get as much possessions as we can because with more money comes more satisfaction. With more money and possessions comes more fulfillment. With more money and, and, and uh, possessions comes greater contentment. 
And Solomon is going to say that that's not the case at all. And yet this is what drives us as human beings. Every individual who goes out and buys a lotto ticket has it in mind, if I can just hit it big, then everything will be fine. It is no wonder, it is no wonder we spend $70 billion in lotto tickets a year as Americans. $70 billion. And it's amazing that we do so with the idea that if we could just hit it big, everything will be fine. Well, here's the crazy thing. Some studies have been done that talk about the largest uh, winners of the lotto. 80% of them in a matter of seven years are back down to the exact same net worth they were before the lotto ticket was won. In seven years, they've spent everything and rendered themselves back to square one of where they were at in their so-called poverty. You see, we long to have money, thinking money will do something, and what we find out is money just creates different problems, not more or less problems, if you will. Now, the reason why we do this, let's be honest, is we pursue idols. It's easy for us to make idols out of things. Now that's been the way that it's been for some time. I remember as a, uh, a Sunday school kid going to Sunday school class, remembering the story of the Israelites. They had been in slavery for hundreds of years under Pharaoh and the Egyptians and longed to be set free. And I remember the teacher telling me the, the truths of God bringing the plagues, trying to soften the hearts of the Egyptians to let God's people go. And then when they do let them go, the Egyptians chase after them to destroy them and to bring them back into slavery. And I remember God's goodness and, and the parting of the Red Sea, the men and women of Israel walked on dry land and, and God was so good to them. And then when the Egyptians' army came in, God brought the waters back and consumed them in one fell swoop. And it's amazing, God's goodness and grace and mercy to the Israelite people. And as they camp on the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses, their leader, receives the law of God on the mountain, the people become restless. God who seems distant now to them, God who hasn't done what they've wanted, they begin to get restless. And they make a decision, we're going to build a calf. A golden calf. And I remember seeing this, and I was a part of high-definition Sunday school classes, so these were the pictures that we got, okay? And I remember looking at that calf thinking, that's awful puny. Why would you substitute the omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present uh, uh, God for that? That seems like a bad trade, here God has been utterly faithful to his people and we would rather have that than the God who is thundering his presence on Mount Sinai. The God who had brought the strongest army to its knees with one wave. The God who brought plagues. We trade that in for that. And I remember as a little kid saying, those guys are a bunch of morons. Someone should have told them that they were pretty foolish. But then I think about the world I live in, and we don't carry around calves of gold. We carry around green pieces of paper. 
And this has become our God. This has become our pursuit. If I can just get this paper. Now, isn't it crazy? This paper, there's nothing of, of real value to it. It's paper. But because it's green, because it's got some symbols on it, uh, because uh, people will take it and use it, it has moved in our hearts to be something so much greater. And I have to ask the same question this morning. Are we a bunch of morons that we would trade the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God who is so faithful and so glorious for a God of our own making? But that's exactly what we do. When we have lots of money, we feel at peace. When we experience more money, we experience more joy. And what God is saying is, am I not the one you should find the good life in? And yet you and I find ourselves running headlong into this idolatry of thinking that more money will bring us the good life we're looking for. So Solomon says, listen, I've had it. I have been rich. I have the wealth of a nation behind me. He was the king. That means he wasn't just personally wealthy, but everybody's wealth at the end of the day was his wealth. He had more than anybody could ever ask for or imagine. And here's what he says. If you think that life is bound up in how much money and possessions you have, you are wrong. And he says, don't fall to the same things I did. And so I want to look at a couple of things that he articulates in our text this morning. And the first thing I want to do is I want to look at some popular myths regarding money. I want to look at some popular myths regarding money. In verses 10 through 17, what Solomon does is he talks about myths or lies about money. Number one, the first myth, you might want to write this down. When wealth increases, you and I aren't tempted with more. As wealth increases, you and I are not tempted with more. Notice verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Let's, let's stop there for a moment. What Solomon is saying is if you love money, you will never get enough of it. And if you want to know this morning, if you've got a problem with money, ask the contentment question, am I satisfied with what I have or is there always something that I need more? I was recently doing a uh, barbecue drive-through and I was the person taking the money. And that meant that I was next to lots of cars. And I remember looking and being envious of the cars. And it's funny, cars are four tires, a bunch of steel and all of that. What I was envious of, a lot of these cars, man, they've got like full-size screens in the dashboard. And I told one of my employees, man, I got to get me one of those. My, my screen's only this big. <laughs> Do you see the problem? We, we can laugh when someone else says it, and I agree. But if we're not contented with what we have, we've got a problem with money. 
If we're not looking at our house with contentment and looking at someone else's house, if we're looking at someone else's business and not our own with envy in our heart, if we're looking at someone else's possessions or position in life, we've got a problem with the issue of contentment. And the issue is, is we have fallen in love with money. And what the author here says is, you know you've got a problem with money when you are not satisfied the more you get. And we see this over and over again. J.D. Rockefeller, one of the most uh, richest men in all of the uh, United States' history, he was worth uh, uh, somewhere in the, the tune of $419 billion. He said this, how much money does it take to make a man happy? Just one more dollar. $419 billion. And he says it's not enough. Will Rogers, the vaudeville actor who was worth $108 million when he died, said the following, what's considered enough money? Just a little bit more. And how many of us find ourselves there? If I just had a little more, if I just had that promotion, if I just had that pay increase, if I just had that house, that new car, those new clothes, that new technology, then I would be happy. The last time I went into the phone store buying phones, a gentleman said, and I thought it was hilarious, this will be the last phone I buy. <laughs> of which when he left, the guy said, in two years, he'll be back. In two years, he'll be back. You see, we have this idea that when we buy the next thing, it's the last thing. And we know we've got a problem with money when we continually go down the treadmill that more will finally be enough. It never is. We are tempted with more, no matter how much we have. Number two, when wealth increases, we believe that we will have no troubles. Verses 11 through 14. He goes on, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with the, his eyes? Sweep is, uh, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Let's stop there. The second thing that we think is when we look at those who are rich, who have everything that they could want in this world, we think they don't have trouble. We look at those people in that subdivision, living in those houses, those people driving those cars, having that kind of paycheck, and we go, boy, it must be nice. They don't have any issues. They don't have anything to worry about. Well, tell that to Steve Jobs, who had billions of dollars and none of it could advance in a single day of his life in fighting cancer. Tell that to Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, who lost the loves of their life because of divorce and then had to separate half of their income to settle the estate. Go to the people of Hollywood and see the despair and the trouble that they find themselves in. Many of them, some of the most unhappy people in our world. You have troubles. Now Solomon says that we trade poor troubles for rich troubles. Well, what are some of the rich troubles? Well, as wealth increases, 
First of all, he says there is an increase in those who eat them. Uh, One translation says of those who pick your pocket. And so as your wealth grows, there are people who want to take your money and spend your money and buy themselves stuff and cars and houses and clothing. And so they're around you so that they can pick your pocket. Uh, We call those people children. (laughs) Here you are, you work, you save, your wealth increases, and their hands come out right here. And as I'm learning, the older they get, the bigger their desires and demands are. But listen, rich people struggle with the pickpockets. I recently saw an interview done with an individual who became a multimillionaire about 20 years ago during the dot-com boom. And the question was asked, you know, what was the biggest joy that came in being a multi-multi-millionaire? He says, I have a hard time answering that question. I can tell you the troubles that came. And the troubles that came, and this is where he really struggled. He said, I don't know who my friends are anymore. Because I don't know if my friends are here because of me or because of my money. He says, I've had a hard time finding love. Because I didn't know if that woman was there for me or my money. Listen, Pastor Tim has no question. Amanda loves Tim for him. Because I had no money. But rich people struggle because they don't know where they're at with individuals. Solomon's going, who loves me? Who's with me because of who I am or who's with me because of what I have? Uh, Another trouble that comes is they can't sleep at night. We would think that, man, living in that house, living on that state-of-the-art bed would allow you to sleep. But he says, no. He says, when we have less to worry about, the better we will sleep. Because we're not responsible for so much. For many of us, the more we get, the more we have to worry about. And this issue of contentment causes us not to be able to sleep at night. When you have little, you have little to worry about. In the last year with the economic downturn and the drop of the stock market, uh, the wor- uh, I think it's American, it may be the world's top 10% uh, lost a total of $9 trillion in losses because of the stock market. Listen, when you're poor, you don't have to worry about the stock market, amen? You don't have to wonder. You don't have to be concerned about the ebbs and flows of this and what earnings report came out positively or negatively. You don't have to worry about it. You can sleep at night. But the more you own, the more you have to keep track of, the more troubles come. Final myth that we have is that we won't be tempted with more. We won't have any troubles. And the final myth is that we get to take it with us. Notice verses 15 through 17. He says this, And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry it away in his hand. This too also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much much vexation and sickness and anger. 
As a pastor, I have stood by a great many caskets, presiding over a great many funerals. I have had the uh, front row seat to the burial of lots of people. And this is what I've learned in my many years of ministry. Rich and poor people bury the same way. Everybody gets a box about six and a half feet long, about two and a half feet wide, with a little cushion in there. All of them are wearing one piece of clothing. None of them take any cash with them. I've never seen any cash in the casket. I've never seen anybody take their car into the grave. I've never seen anybody box up their house and put it in the grave. What I have seen are family members make an absolute fool of themselves as they fight over that individual's stuff. And so what Solomon is saying is you don't take it with you. But here is the lie that the world tells us. He with the most toys wins. You see, we've got in our mind, whether we know it or not, that we're all at Chuck E. Cheese. We go to Chuck E. Cheese. If you've never been there, you should go sometime. And you play the games and you get tickets. And Chuck E. Cheese gives you these little buckets that you collect your tickets in. And so you win at, at, at uh, uh, the ball game or the, the claw game and the tickets come out. And you turn in your tickets at the end of the night for the prize. You see, some of us think life is all about accumulating all of the world's tickets and money and possessions. And at the end of the day, we get to heaven and we show God our bucket. Look at how full my bucket is. Of which God says, very, very clearly, you can gain the whole world and still lose your soul. So we don't take it with us. And God is unconcerned with the amount of stuff you have because in the end of it all, it's going to burn. Now here's the problem. We hear these things and we can very quickly flip to the other side now yes yesterday this last weekend we visited our oldest son who's in college in uh, central michigan and we were making our way back uh, from his school and we stopped in holland michigan a wonderful place to visit and we were in one of the stores and my children who have been sitting under the teaching of ecclesiastes were with us and amanda saw a purse a little hand purse and i said hey you should you should buy it it's thirty dollars you'd be great you don't buy a lot of things for yourself of which my sons in the balcony of that room said to us very very ominously it's all gonna burn meaningless meaningless so I told them that's fine you can stay home and we'll never let you out again so you can take what Solomon is saying and do what my sons did and say money's bad God hates money and you should too but nowhere does it say that listen to me nowhere in the text does he say one bad thing about people that have money Nowhere does he say one good thing about people who don't have money. The issue isn't money. Money is an amoral thing. It isn't immoral. It isn't moral. It is something that doesn't have a moral value to it in and of itself. Uh, let me explain. It's like a hammer. A hammer by itself is just a hammer. Now, I can take that hammer and use that hammer to build a house. 
to put a nail in the wall, to, to put up a beautiful picture. Or I can take the hammer and I can hit you over the head with it. One is a moral good, one is an immoral bad. The hammer didn't do it, it's the person using the hammer. Money is the same thing. Money in and of itself is not bad. It is neither immoral or moral. It is the person who uses it that is going to determine if it's good or bad. Now how do we know if what we're doing is good or bad with this thing called money and possessions? Notice there's a mindset we've gotta have. If we're not gonna buy into the myths of the world and the myths of our heart, the idolatrous heart's pursuit that more money means more satisfaction, then we've gotta pursue this mindset. And what is the proper mindset? Notice uh, he goes on in verse 18. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. Time out. Wait a minute. You just said in verse 17, moreover, all his days he shall eat in darkness and in much, much, much vexation and sickness and anger. And then on the heels of that, behold, there's good and it's fitting to find enjoyment. Wait a minute. Something changed. The thing that changed is if you use money for yourself, buying into those lies and myths, your life will be filled with much vexation, sickness, and anger. The idea of sickness is heart sick, okay? Not health sick, but worried, anxiety over the money. And there'll be anger at how money is spent and vexation about how But if you will live with your money as God has called you to, there he says there will be good, it'll be fitting that you will eat and drink and find enjoyment because behold, I've seen a good. It is good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toils which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's the good life. That's what God longs for us, for us to enjoy life and yes, the use of money. How do we do that? We have to have two mindsets in our mind every time we spend money. Number one, God entrusts us with his money. God entrusts us with, our, with his money. Notice that it is God, verse 18, who gives us our money. This is the life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. We are to accept this lot, rejoice in his toils, for this is a gift from God. Numerous times we see our money is given to us from God. Do you see that? All that you have, all the money in your pocket and in your accounts, all of the house and cars and stuff you have, God has given it 
to you. He has given it to me. Even our ability to work and, and have wealth. Listen to me. I cannot do what I'm doing right now apart from the sovereign grace and goodness of God. I can't. Because God could say, but all is rendered mute. And I'm up here doing this. And I don't have control over that. God does. God has given me, for whatever reason, a brain that likes to and, and has found some ability to run a catering business. Now that involves my body as well because it's a physical work. It's not just a mental thing. And so I got to recognize every day I go to work, God has entrusted me. He's given me another day to do this work that enables me to build wealth, to have an income so that I can buy things. And as that money comes in, I need to recognize that all that this catering company makes is from God. I didn't do it. God has enabled me to do it. God has entrusted me with it. And so we need to recognize God has given us what we have. We need to start there. Then the second thing that we need to have as a mindset is that God has given us all of this stuff to enjoy it, to enjoy it. Five times in our text, you're gonna see the word enjoyment, enjoy, or joy. God gives us things so that we'll enjoy them. Listen to me, church. God gave you a house, enjoy it. God's given you cars, enjoy them. God has given you clothing. He's given you technology. He's given you the ability to go out and enjoy food and drink. Enjoy it. If you've not stolen or robbed someone of it, if you've gotten it through, through uh, ethical means, God says enjoy it. Enjoy it. Now here's the problem. We as Christians hear the word enjoy and we give tacit approval to God has entrusted. I know God's given me everything. Yada, 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 I got it. Now I can enjoy. Our enjoyment, listen to me very carefully, is inextricably connected to the entrusting. Does that make sense? I will not fully enjoy to the level that God wants me to enjoy my money and possessions unless I connect it with the God who entrusted it to me. What that means is that the way I spend money, the way I look at money, the way I invest my money is going to look very, very different because I am not the end all anymore. I am not, my enjoyment is not the singular thing. The scriptures are full of times where God has said, I am the master, you are the servant, I have given you, entrusted you with these talents, with this money, with these gifts, and I will come back one day and see what you've done with them. Have you done what I would have done with them? And so what we see is, once this mindset is here, we've got a plan moving forward. That's the third point. What are we supposed to do? If I'm going to connect my enjoyment to the entrusting that God has given me of money, it's going to change the way I look and spend and think and act around money. Write these down, because this is going to be your homework for the week. My plan, our plan moving forward begins with the head. 
your head. And I want you to think about this question. Am I glorifying God with my money? And what I want you to think about is God has a say in the way I spend my money. And so I've got to ask the question this morning, am I spending it the way God wants me to? And could it be that I'm not enjoying my money because I'm not spending it the way God wants? So with every dollar that I have, is it doing what God wants me to do with it? Yes, God wants you to enjoy it. But this is God's money, and God has intentions of how it's going to be spent. Parents, we tell our kids this all the time. You can spend your money any way you want, right? But when it comes to my money, you're not going to do X, Y, and Z. That's my money. God says the same thing. So am I glorifying God with the use of my money? We've got to ask our head that question. Number two, we've got to ask our heart Am I grateful for the money I have? When I recognize that God has entrusted me with his money, then I am just super grateful that God has extended any amount of money to me. That God has given me the ability to make wealth, to have a job. So let me ask you, church, when was the last time that as you were spending, quote unquote, your money, you were thanking God? Listen, if you think your money is yours, you won't thank anybody but yourself. But when you see your money, your possessions, your house, your car, all that you have as a gift from God for you to enjoy, you start overflowing with grateful hearts. The older I get, the more I recognize God's sovereign hand in all of my affairs. And I find myself after a phone call at 5B's thanking the Lord. Thank you for that job. I don't know why it came, but thank you. Thank you for the opportunity for me to make wealth. Thank you for the opportunity for me uh, to send my kid to a college. Thank you for the opportunity for me to go visit that kid. Thank you for me to be able to uh, share with my children uh, a time away. I mean, we just go on. Thank you for the food that's in front of me. Thank you for the car that takes me from point A to point B. When we recognize that God is the giver of these things, we will become more grateful. And we will overflow in our thanksgiving. And so if you want to know if you've got a problem with money, how grateful are you? When was the last time you said thank you? And again, as parents, we see this so often. We see the ungratefulness of our children. And it's so ugly to us. And how our, our ingratitude must be ugly before a holy with our head we've got to think with our heart we've got to think with our hands am I being generous with my money if God is willing to give us his money as his followers should we not be willing to give to others now that begins first with our families we should provide for our families but we are to be generous in other ways I'll make an offensive statement. I've seemed to be big on these in these last days of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you call yourself a Christ follower and none of your money is going to God's kingdom work, you've got a problem with money. Let me say that again. If you call yourself a Christ follower, meaning you ascribe yourself as that, if you don't, that's irrelevant for you. 
But if you call yourself, you say, man, listen to me. I believe these truths about God. And it doesn't hit my pocketbook. Now, listen, what I didn't say is if you don't give to Village Bible Church, you got a money problem. I'm saying if you're not giving your money to something that has the purpose and plan of seeing the kingdom of God advanced, you've got a problem with money. And Solomon says, fix it. Fix it. Because God has entrusted you with it. He's asked you to give some of it back as a way of worship to him. And if you come and go and say, I'm a Christ follower, I'm a Christ follower, and it never impacts your wallet, brother and sister, before it's too late, before your life is filled with vexation and sickness and anger, God says, put me before your money. And there you will find enjoyment and you will find the life that God longs for you to have. What's your issue with money today? God's entrusted you with it so that you can enjoy it, but you've got to do it his way and not yours. And I can tell you first and foremost, it is really easy to think money brings happiness. On our way back, from Noah's school, we drove the shoreline of Lake Michigan and it's easy to look at people's lots in life and say, wouldn't it be nice to live in that house? Wouldn't it be nice to drive that car? We've come to this conclusion in America and the Christians are just as bad as the non-Christians to think that money is the end-all be-all and God says the good life is found in him and no amount of money.